I live in Queens. I grew up in Queens. I even went to Queens College after my good public school education in Queens. Did the Mets take the National League East this year? Yes, they fucking better. <laughs> <laughs> Best answer ever. I'm Lillian Ruiz. And I'm Charlie O'Donnell. Welcome to the Schlepp to City Hall. The number one New York City election podcast hosted by two undecided voters from Brooklyn. Obviously, one of the big questions on everybody's mind is the budget. New York City is facing a huge budget crunch, and that's a context that everyone needs to take into consideration when you're hearing about new ideas for candidates, and there's a big question about whether we can afford any of them, and what's going to be cut, what are the priorities, and I think the average New Yorker probably doesn't even understand how the budget even works. So we've brought in Maria Dulis, who works at the Citizens Budget Committee. It's a nonpartisan group, and she's one of the most knowledgeable people on how the New York City budget works. And uh, we're going to get a little education lesson here today. So we're excited to have her on. So we're, we're going to jump in, Maria. Could you give us an overview of who you are, what you do, and yeah, how long you've been doing it and how you're involved in New York City government? Yeah, so I've been born and raised. I've been in New York City my whole life and became interested in urban issues as someone living and caring about the city and their community. Went to policy school and very quickly became interested in budgets because I realized that's where the rubber meets the road. We can talk about policies and politics and our ideas all we want, but when it comes to putting them forward in something concrete, it really is all about the budget. And so I joined the CBC about 15 years ago. The Citizens Budget Commission, for those who don't know, is a nonprofit, nonpartisan, non-ideological watchdog and think tank that monitors state and city services and finances. One part, as I said, watchdog, where we really uh, are taking the hard look at the numbers. And one part think tank, where we do evidence-based work on fiscal policies and other policies that really matter to New Yorkers. And so I have been there a long time. I started as the point person on the city budget. So I know it intimately and very well and also did a lot of work on labor relations and municipal bargaining and the public workforce, as well as infrastructure and economic competitiveness of cities. I've got like the full perspective on the city budget. And now my job is mostly to help us think about how to explain all of this to New Yorkers in a compelling way and have push our uh, state and local leaders to make good decisions based on the facts. What, what's your view of the financial literacy of the average New Yorker when it comes to the city budget and how the dollars get spent and, and how all this works. I am also a native New Yorker, been here my whole life, and not until the beginning of this podcast did I know that, wow, there's this wonderful group of nonpartisan, really smart people thinking about this. And I, I thought maybe I had to do it all on my own. Yeah, it's been a mission of mine since I started at CPC to spread the gospel to the people and let them know the budget is not this, it is an intimidating thing. It's thousands of pages of documents and tables and figures and what have you, but 
yeah, there, there are resources available to help one understand really how that impacts one's life on a daily basis. And I think most people understand, can understand budget concepts in the fundamental sense because they, those are the decisions they're making on a daily basis with their own lives about how they set priorities and what they spend more on and how much they save versus spending. And so I think those concepts are easy to understand. It gets intimidating when we get into some technical details about debt and pensions and all these other things. But I think fundamentally people get that I pay my taxes and my taxes fund these services that the city provides. And I should, I should expect that I get good quality services from my tax dollars performed as efficiently as possible, and that I should have some say on what, what gets more or less attention. And the way that typically happens is through the election process. So you were just mentioning everyone comes in and they're like, I pay my taxes so I can get services and I can get all sorts of things. And we've obviously post-corona, we're hearing all sorts of things that the tax base is eroding. We're hitting a budget deficit. Lots of everyday folks feel like, feel the squeeze and feel that we're in a bit of a death spiral across the board. So I'm curious, how do you think New Yorkers should be thinking about what they should hold a new mayor accountable to on in terms of dealing with those issues? Well, that's a great question. And there are a bunch of things wrapped up in that question, both about the economy and then how the economy impacts the budget. If I could take a step back for a second, I'd say we just went through this tremendous economic expansion, one of the longest on record. And during that time, the city budget grew and services grew and the size of the workforce grew and there wasn't enough set aside for the rainy day. And one of the thing about savings, the thing about savings is you never know why you'll need the money and for what, how, under what circumstances. So yes, this is the pandemic was just like this complete shock and the way it impacted the budget of the economy is unprecedented as everybody has been saying and feeling right for the last almost year now. And so it, it is a big impact and it wasn't something you could prepare for, but that's why you need to prepare. And so now we're in a state where, yes, there's been this like really huge, there was a huge immediate hit to the city's revenues. And now the mayor has just released his new budget proposal that shows us that there has been a huge hit to the property tax. And that's in some ways unexpected. We've been talking in the past few months about the fact that people are not going back to work. Commercial tenants are giving up leases. Homeowners are under stress and may not be able to make property tax payments. Small landlords, we have people who are unable to pay rent and perhaps small landlords who are unable to pay their mortgages. And so we've been discussing these effects and now we actually see it materialize in the budget in a decrease in property tax revenue. And that is really something, something to behold because the property tax is structured in a way that it stabilizes the budget. And so we have seen it throughout recessions continue to grow, even as all other revenues plummet. And that's not a one-time blip. That is something that is going to continue now and is in our baseline and may actually, there may, who knows, be another reset where that decreases more. And so that's like really what's worrisome. We're also worried because we still have thousands of people who are out of work and are concerned about what the recovery starts to look like and when those jobs will come back. Mm -hmm. And so there are big questions for the mayor on the economy and, and the city's economic model. When it comes to the budget, we have had 
what we call a structural budget deficit, where our expenses are pace our revenues for decades, right? Now, the impact of this kind of cyclical, or this event, makes that all the more pronounced. And so in thinking about the next mayor, I think the fundamental question is, how will you close the $4 billion budget gap? And how are the choices that you will make, how will they impact me today? And how are they gonna impact my kids tomorrow? Because it is very tempting in these situations to say, I just need to get over the hump. I'll cut these things here or take these actions and I'll just push those costs down the road. And that is short-sighted and really detrimental to the long-term health of the city. So I think New Yorkers should be saying like, what are you gonna do to close the budget? How is that going to impact the services that I need and rely on? The core stuff, schools, sanitation, safety of the city, social service support, really core stuff. And then how are your decisions going to impact whether the city is a good place to live 5, 10, 20 years from now? I think that's really fundamentally what the what the question should be. If Am I thinking about it in a too over, overly simplistic way? to look at sort of budget levels across recent history. And I, I do, I tend to do this with other things. For example, like when people talked about the uptick in crime, I'll go to the long-term chart and say, okay, where is it at the end of the Giuliani administration, at the end of the Bloomberg administration, and try and at least level set. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's a big budget expansion during the de Blasio administration But if somebody were to tell me we're cutting the budget back to the level it was at the beginning of this administration, as a New Yorker, mentally, I'm like, I didn't feel, I I don't know how many people felt underserved then, but would we feel underserved if that got cut? Or at what level will I feel it? Yeah, that's a great question. And It's a terrific question and terrific perspective and way to think about it. And there's no perfect answer to that question, but I'll give you some ways to to think about it. One of the things that we've noted is the size of the workforce has just grown tremendously. And some of that you can account for, and some of that, if you were to take it away, you would feel it. So the example, the preeminent example of that would be UPK. We didn't have that before. We have it now in every district. We're also doing this 3K expansion. This is the research shows us this is something you can do, particularly for disadvantaged households, to really impact educational outcomes. Good investment. A couple of the thousands of the people we've hired are pre-K teachers, so we can get that. Now, when you look at headcount expansion, and like I don't kill me, but I can't remember the exact numbers. A couple hundred people, a thousand people who are the civilians at the Department of Sanitation, most people are not picking up trash. So what exactly are they doing? Mm -hmm. And part of what has happened under the de Blasio administration is that there's been this increase in adding of new programs and services, which look, like I said, we make a decision at the election, right? We decide what the priorities are at the election, and then an administration should enact a new agenda. But there was never really like a reprioritization to say, this is what we think it needs to look like. And so these other programs are going to be reprioritized or your new mission is to do X and, and Y. Instead, there was just more. Things were layered on and added instead of restructured and realigned. And so that's one of the reasons we think there is significant room to make cuts in the budget and to reduce personnel without impacting services. But it takes a sort of will and desire to do that. And it's not something that was really done while times were good. 
And it's not really something that's being done now. A lot of the cuts we've seen, cuts in quotes, during the pandemic have been things like we underspent on energy because nobody, city workers weren't in office buildings and so that we shut the lights off. And there've been some modest like service cuts here and there, but there haven't been like huge efficiency savings and saying we've got to do better and we've got to set stricter priorities and figure out like what is core business that matters and what can go to the wayside. And part of that, candidly, there's a lot of that can be done internally by commissioners. And part of that is tackling back office stuff, like figuring out like, hey, we've got to bring procurement into the 21st century. We started to take some sets, kick it into high gear and get this done because this is going to be a long term savings and improvement all around. But part of that is also sitting with the labor unions and saying, hey, we've got to look at how we do things and bring these practices out to date. To, to your earlier point about how much do you think people get it, I think one thing New Yorkers don't understand is just how much of the way their services are, are structured is governed by labor contracts and the details of that. And it was certainly stunning to me when I started this job 15 years ago to sit and think, get this pile of stuff on my desk and say, what is this? And say, oh, this is the teacher's contract. And it's thousands of pages long. And to be like, what? And to look at all the details that are governed in this contract. And a commissioner or the mayor can't say, this doesn't really make sense anymore. This made sense in the 1980s when we had, we were dealing with this circumstances. It doesn't make sense in 2020. Let's just stop doing it that way. They've got to sit with the union and negotiate these details. And that's hard work, but it's work that's critical to get done, especially in a time like this, where we are so uncertain about what the next, at least short-term horizon of the city looks like economically. But no, to, to a frustration for me often is the assumption that every dollar cut from the budget is a sacrifice. And that's not true. That's not always true. A lot of times it is an ability to make an efficiency or sacrificing that's something that is is not necessary. Yeah, it's interesting. The the stuff that you bring up actually in an earlier conversation that we had with one of the candidates, they brought up a lot of these same issues that so much of it is just going to be like a willingness to get in the weeds in some ways with this with these sorts of very wonky details about the budget. And in your experience in the last 15 years, how often have you seen New York City mayors being willing to wade into that turf? And or is it more of something that they just like completely seed it elsewhere? And that's how all of this inflation starts to happen? Yeah, it's varied, right? I think the city coming out of the fiscal crisis implemented what is probably one of the strongest fiscal frameworks and structures in the country. It's very strict. It's strong. It's one of the reasons that's kept New York City put in a position to prosper because it was such a devastating event that coming out of that, we really had a great framework established. And part of that was this, what are known as the program to eliminate the gap, which was a constant attempt to make cuts or generate revenues to keep the budget balanced. And the ethos of that was we had constantly monitoring and constantly acting. And sometimes, obviously, in the time like a recession, those pegs would be big. 
and occasionally they would hurt because they would require service cuts. Mm -hmm. But the pegs would happen even in good times and they would be minuscule, but there was a certain exercise and discipline to saying like, well, we have to generate some savings and that's what's expected of us. And let's get into the habit. And part of that is it provides just an avenue or a vehicle to have ideas for what, how to improve. And that was lost in the early years of the de Blasio administration. De Blasio, the mayor de Blasio came out of the city council at a time where some of the pegs that had been proposed by Mayor Bloomberg had been particularly contentious, right? Things like closing firehouses and summer youth employment slots and things the council really cared about and felt that he just didn't want to do a PEG program and didn't do one for a few years. Then he had another model where it was optional, not required. And I think what's happening, what happened in those intervening years is that discipline and the muscle of being able to do that was lost a little bit. And, and that's what's, that's what's sort of the structures there. We just have to like re-engage the muscles. On the broader kind of restructuring things, look, it takes leadership and it takes it takes someone who is able to build a good rapport with labor leaders to tell them, like, we're in this together and I want to, I'm not attacking you. I, I want to work collaboratively and have a lot, I'm a New Yorker, right? So I know a lot of, tons of people who work in public service and a lot of the great ideas from how you could actually make improvements come from public workers. Like you can engage them in the process and it doesn't have to be adversarial. And you can have those conversations on how to make their efficiencies. Mm -hmm. Now, one area in terms of being able to generate both short-term but also long-term savings for the city is in health insurance. And that's gonna be a challenging conversation. Because right now, city employees receive health insurance from the city and have no responsibility to pay any share of the premium. So it's essentially free. They pay copays, they pay deductibles, there are other out-of-pocket costs, but there's no monthly premium. And that's a huge benefit, and it's a huge cost to the city. And the city could certainly provide, ask for a, a small premium contribution from employees to generate hundreds of millions of dollars and actually start to fix some of the long-term structural issues. And that hasn't been broached. There was an agreement earlier in the de Blasio administration to have the conversations and find some savings. And that's been exhausted. And so now I think this is the next frontier. And for a mayoral candidate who is serious about thinking, how do I, you know, leave this budget in a stronger place than I at the end than where I begin? And how can I free up resources in my budget to devote to the priorities I care about, whether they're social services, housing, whatever they may be? This is key. This is like really key reform to, to, to reform those health insurance arrangements and get a bit of a, of a contribution from employees. Mm -hmm. So I take it you're not actually trying to win this election. Not me. <laughs> I'm just showing the path to prosperity. <laughs> but that's, that's hard too. There yeah. are, I think that's one of the things we were, Lily and I were talking when we started this about there were certain economic necessities. You're starting on one end, you're trying to make this point meet this point, and it's cuts, it's increases, and all that sort of stuff. And there's just a math reality to it. And we were trying to figure out whether which historically unpopular things different candidates could at least acknowledge or admit to, or whether you just 
say you're going to figure it out and not admit to anything that could sink your campaign, which is also very difficult because there's, depending on your account, at 9, 10, 11 people running. So you have to say something. And so it's this balance. Like, what will you cut? Where will you go? How, what taxes will you raise? You have to do something. But yeah. there's always a constituency you're going to bother if you say anything specific. No, that's right. And that sort of is exactly what I was trying to get to earlier, which is don't accept the kind of platitudes. Of like, the other pl- sort of popular approach is like, oh, no, I'm going to kickstart the economy and the economic growth will take care of it all. Well, no, you should have plans for that. And that's important, but that's not going to fix your problems. And so you need the specificity. And yes, candidates are not inclined to do that. We took a stab in the early days of the pandemic sort of saying, okay, if we were in the driver's seat, what do we think some of the proposals are to do this? And I keep coming back to this notion of shared sacrifice, right? You can't do it just on cuts, right? You can't just take $4 billion out of services. You can't take $4 billion out of health insurance for public employees. You can't do $4 billion in tax increases. You have to figure out what the right mix of that is and what is the least harmful of those options. And I think it can be done. And I think it can be done for the city at this moment without a lot of pain. There is the prospect of more federal aid on the way. The sort of counter to that on the risk side is what may happen with the state budget. And as the state budget continues to experience stress, how much of those state fiscal problems become city fiscal problems. But even with that, I think it's still of a size that you can take actions that are reasonable and can get through without a great amount of pain. But yes, candidates should be specific about what exactly it is and which tax increases they're willing to support on whom and what they're willing to cut and for what reason. And I think that's all important. And I I think the strategy for managing or working with labor is an important part of that conversation, not only because of how much, 60% of the workforce is, of the budget is personnel cost. It's a huge part of how you manage as a manager. But just practically speaking, there's a billion dollars in labor savings balancing the fiscal year 22 budget. How is the, I don't think this mayor is going to get there on presenting a plan for that, even though he's using it to plug the hole. So what is the next mayor going to do to fill that billion dollars? It's a big fundamental question. And sorry, go ahead. I was actually, it's funny because we've been talking about cuts, but you are bringing up this thing that we, the story we get told as New Yorkers is like, oh, we're going to fill this out by bringing up revenues and so on. And I actually, as I think I mentioned earlier when I reached out to you, one of the things that's so interesting is that so much of what we're told as New Yorkers is what brings revenue is building and development. And it feels like the conversation around building and development is getting more and more contentious each year as people try and figure out what are, what am I actually getting out of this? How does this actually look? And it feels like there's so many competing priorities. And I guess my question is one, what's the, What's the role of development revenues in the budget? And two, how should we, how should New Yorkers really be thinking about that and advocating for themselves or advocating for changes to what credits and things like that, that developers get that the average New Yorker certainly does not see? 
Yeah, there certainly is a huge part. That's what we call the tax expenditure budget. There, It's not spending, but it, it could have been spending if the revenues were there because you weren't giving a tax break. And I think there are those tax breaks for development and housing, but also economic development. And I don't think any of them get enough scrutiny. And there was some attempt to really try to unpack what's happening on the the business tax breaks in the city and the economic development. And it hasn't, it was spearheaded by the council and hasn't really gotten far due to challenges with getting some of the data. I think the de Blasio administration, though, has been pretty good about saying we're, we're not going to just give companies tax breaks because they ask for them. If it makes some sort of strategic sense because we're trying to build out a larger industry or something, OK, but don't the bad old days were we're going to leave New York and we're issuing a threat. So give us a tax break. And I think there's widespread recognition that's a bad model in terms of development. A lot of it comes from the property tax. We have a commercial rent tax. We have a real estate uh, transfer tax, a mortgage recording tax. I don't know how much it amounts to overall, but there's a lot there, not to mention like the economic activity you may generate from construction jobs and, and other parts of this industry. So it is sizable. And I think we're in a very, we're in a challenging moment. I think there's community frustrations and there are frustrations on the business and development side as well. And we actually launched a project late next year to say, somebody's got to figure this out because the future of the city is not stagnation. The city has to continue growing if we're going to be the center of the world like we have always been and want to be, right? And I'd also say, which I think gets lost a lot of the time, one of the... We have done work and some of the work I mentioned on like how cities compete and whether New York is competitive. And we found, sure, you know, New York is very competitive for a lot of reasons. It's safe. We've got a fantastic workforce. We've got all these industries, the culturals, right? All these competitive strengths. But one of the weaknesses is housing costs. And the answer to housing costs is not locking down everything we have right now. The answer to the housing cost question is building more. And we have just done a terrible job, and I think some New Yorkers may be surprised to hear this, a terrible job of bringing on new supply and easing the demands on the market through just bringing in more housing units. We make it terribly hard to build. And I don't mean that, and, and we've documented this, like we've compared New York to San Francisco, which has the hard, most horrible reputation for getting things built, and yet they're producing at a greater rate than we are in the city. And the suburbs are even worse. If you want to think about the regional economy, and sure, maybe not everybody needs to live in the five boroughs, maybe they can live like outside and use our amazing mass transit system to get in from the suburbs, the suburbs are even worse at doing that. And there needs to be a better way to build. And I understand. I've also been doing this series of podcasts as I try to understand these issues and get the perspectives. And what you under, you get the sense from some communities that it's like our community has been neglected and we have been yearning for this investment for so long. And so now we have a developer or a business asking for this land use amendment or a zoning amendment. And this is our opportunity to be heard. And the problem with that is your, the concerns may be very legitimate, right? They're not, the developer is not the one who should be required to meet them. Some of them, yes. If you're talking about, okay, you need to build out some green space or some public space in your proposal, sure. 
but you can't ask a developer necessarily to build you a school because your schools are crowded. That's a government responsibility. And so the, the feelings, the, the sort of demands are being placed on developers when it's really a different conversation. I think the other challenge here and what I observe is like this tension between the local concerns and needs and the citywide perspective. And how do we balance that and reconcile that? Because our system is such that the city council person, fundamentally, we go through a long process. And at the end of the day, the council member will say yay or nay. And the council, the rest of the council will defer to that person. And the council person is there to represent their district, right? So that is their role. At the same time, you have to look at some projects and say, from a citywide perspective, those projects were important. And we, the CBC didn't take a position on Industry City, for example, but it always struck me that was a project that was asking for zero in tax incentives and breaks. All it was asking for was some amendments to the zoning code to be able to expand and build on what was already an established track record of job creation after engaging in an extensive community process. So something is wrong with that right? Like you should be able to have in a community engagement and get to yes on a project like that. It would seem to me. That, that's um, almost the, what was demanded when Amazon wanted to come to, to Queens. Like that is the version of the way that side quote unquote was asking for development and expansion to happen. And it still got turned down. Yeah, that was a different, I, so I would say that was a different case one for the way it was unveiled, which was like, boom, you won and we're getting all these tax breaks and aren't you happy you won? And people were like, wait, what's happening? But what I did find interesting about the Amazon, right, was if you ask people in that community and there were polls that showed this, do you support the development? The answer was a resounding yes. And in that case, it was the inverse where you had people from outside the city who were like, whoa, 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 we don't want this. And again, that's another, it's been a couple of years now. How many jobs would we have had in that area had that gone through? Because there's never the sort of countervailing analysis that says, hey, you passed up the opportunity for this job. You would have had 6,000, 8,000, 10,000 more jobs in Long Island City at this moment in the middle of a pandemic. That part of it never gets through. And I think a big part of this will fixing this or improving what we have or breaking this logjam will absolutely take leadership from the next mayor. That, may, that person is going to have to say, this is my vision for growth in this city. These are the sort of big transformative projects I'm committed to, and here's how your community will benefit. And here are the investments that I am making for disadvantaged communities that I will stick to that will be transformative and that I will make to re make regardless of what kind of development occurs. And I think that it's going to require mayoral leadership to really reset and get the city back on track on this and build uh, trust for communities to feel like, okay, we will finally be heard and get some of our longstanding needs addressed. So you alluded to it, but I do want to give you the opportunity to plug your pod because we, you mentioned it, and if you want to share with people what it is and what they'll learn. Yeah, so we I do a podcast called What's the Data Point with my colleague Begin Max at, at Gotham's Gazette. 
And we do it about biweekly and typically interview someone in city government or business or the civic space on the topic of the day. And our gimmick is, of course, center it on a specific data point that is compelling and then have the guest explain why that is and use that as a starting point for the conversation. We've interviewed deputy mayors, controllers, commissioners, a bunch of people, just as a way to have a very real fact-centered conversation and not political spin. Yeah. Thank you for that opportunity. <laughs> of course. So, Charlie, I know you had another question, so feel free to. Yeah. So, I'm sure you probably get this all the time, but I have a revenue generating pitch. And I posted it on Twitter the other day, and it opened up a whole interesting conversation. And the way Twitter is, no one's actually an expert, but everybody likes to think they are. And we're all talking at each other as if we know what we're talking about. But I've just realized this is somebody who actually does know what they're talking about and might have an opinion on it. So I'll throw something out there to you. A lot of the conversations that I've heard about revenue generation comes to looking at who's making money in the city and trying to get it from them. It's always like, how do we tax the wealthy and all of that sort of stuff? The, the concern or the counter argument has been, well, especially as we've learned from the pandemic, people can move around. They don't necessarily have to live in the city. They can go move to other places. And so there's no guarantee, particularly in a world where restaurants aren't open or my favorite restaurant's closing and all that sort of stuff, that the city will be the same. So I thought about areas of wealth that are locked up that can't move. And I think as someone who is local, you may have experienced this. There seems to me among my peer group, lots of instances where people who otherwise have stable housing and are financially secure have within their families real estate holdings that are come in under the estate tax five and a quarter million dollar cap where you have a lot of wealth being transferred within the city, sometimes out of the city, right? Sometimes you have grandma's house and nobody even lives in the city anymore and it's just being passed on and that money's going out. So the proposal I had made was a, an estate tax specifically tied to the gains in real estate we've made over the last 10, 20, 30 years where you could say, hey, if, if you own a property and you yourself are somebody that, you know, has a place to live, has a stable income and all that sort of stuff, maybe we should be taking 5, 10, 15% off the top instead of just letting the first 5 million come in free to everybody on the estate tax. You're the expert. So, is that a terrible idea? It is a, well, okay. So is this a, for state revenue or city revenue? So that's the question. I threw it out as a, a state, but actually I thought like, why not a city? Why not a city version of the estate transfer tax for real estate? So here's the thing. And I actually don't know the research on this so well. But the the reason the estate tax was raised to $5 million and the argument that's often made is once you retire, you are highly mobile. 
and you are create by reducing the estate tax like that you are creating an incentive for people to take that wealth and take their essentially their estate out of state and then it becomes counterproductive because you actually lose the revenue you might have had i don't know what i i don't know what the evidence on that actually is it's clever that's you know what hey, that's, you were that's definitely right when there. you were setting it up you were definitely on the right logical construct right one of the reasons the city it increases the property taxes can't move your house can't move <laughs> right and so that that's one of the reasons where it's, yeah you tax something that can't move so hey, i got a clever out of a budget expert i'm done i'm out of here <laughs> i'm just gonna go let the experts figure out how to do it but just waiting for the backlash of how we want to tax all of the hard-earned work that grandma and grandpa put into <laughs> providing this house for their family. So that's why I'll never be able to run. Yeah. If you want to have the federal budget conversation, one of the most glaring things in the, the federal budget is the tax break for the mortgage interest deduction, right? This is, it's huge and it's a political non-starter to even suggest altering it in any way. And yet when we're looking at who benefits, the people who own homes, almost by definition, better off than the people who don't. And you can't get, owning a home is the American dream. And if grandma was able to buy that home and own it, people feel very strongly about their family's ability to hold on to that home. And I, I, I get it, but I think you're on to the fact that, okay, our tax policy needs to evolve again with the circumstances that were in the new economic reality about who who owns stuff and has stuff and who doesn't. Yeah. And um, they forget what they paid for that home 40 years ago relative to income, which is right. another very different thing. Which is huge, which is a huge, it's a huge, it's hugely different. I'm super curious what you think in terms of for a working class or middle class New Yorker, there are opportunities that just don't exist. And I'm curious, what do you think are the political batons and budgetary batons that folks should be taking up to try and pave a way forward for things that maybe were previously political non-starters? How do they wield themselves and wield the information to, to get some more backbone on these things? So give me an example of something that is an opportunity that doesn't exist. That, that was, I think, my question to you. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Are there, I mean, is there something in the roughage that people can pull out and use? So here's the thing, right? Like we, the, the strength of the city has always been its ability to, to attract talent. And what does that is the opportunity here. And I think there, we, we have such a diversification of industry and employment base and small businesses and large headquarters. We have everything here. And so we actually have a, a lot, there's a lot of employment opportunity that attracts people, I think, across the income spectrum. We also have a really large city government with, as we said, very strong union benefits that is super stabilizing for the middle class here in a way that's just not in other cities that are not unionized. And so that is an important difference too. It's not only our public sector, we have strong unions for construction and hotels and other things that are very active and doing a good job from the perspective of their members and keeping them in the middle class. I think, as we've talked about, the city is high cost. 
And that's not necessarily bad in and of itself. But I think it, when you pay for something, you want to feel like you're getting your money's worth, right? Back to anything, any purchase any one of us makes when we go to the deli or the department store. And it's the same thing with people paying taxes, right? They want to feel like they, they like their home and they're living in a good neighborhood and the quality of life is good. And for, the city needs to have a laser focus on maintaining a good quality service for the things that people depend on every day. So it's going back to the same kind of things like schools are critical, right? Feeling safe is critical. I really can't stress that the whole underpinning to the city's economic recovery in the last 30 years has been that it's been safe. Now, has that been done perfectly? No. And I don't mean to suggest that, that there couldn't have been changes, but the fact that the city became safe and how it did that so dramatically in that period was really so important to the economy and people feeling like they wanted to stay here and live here and raise a family here. So like maintaining those public services is really important. I think, and maybe this is me being a little too personal in my experience here, like I think one area where there could be greater support is in the sort of childcare sphere. And pre-K was a good step. There's 3K. I think about what more could be done around childcare costs here to help support families and, and particularly working moms. It would be great if we could have some sort of federal policy on that, or even a state policy would be preferable. But I think that's one area where there may be room for the city to do something a little bit more, and that could be reasonable and tailored to support working families particularly because it impacts the workforce. We've seen over the pandemic, childcare needs have taken a ton of people, particularly obviously women, out of the workforce because yep. they've had to deal with that for sure. So that's certainly a great suggestion. And I, certain, I, I think that not something we've heard a ton from candidates so far on. And certainly they can work on that more. So just to wrap up, we, as we've talked to all the candidates, we have been asking a few final parting questions and we figure we might as well save the important stuff for later and, and include you in that tradition. So what's your favorite pizza slice in the city and is it round or square? Is it round or square? Whoa. <laughs> This is not going to be a popular answer, but my favorite pizza slice is the pizza on Francis Lewis Boulevard by my mom's house, Gigi's Pizza, and it is not square. It is round. (laughs) Everybody's got their place. A few years ago, I went to a talk at the Brooklyn Historical Society from the the pizza tour guy. I can't think of his name, but like the guy, and he kicked off the conversation by saying, I'll tell you this talk on the history of pizza in Brooklyn, I'll tell you what this talk is not going to be. It's not going to be a debate on the best pizza slice in Brooklyn because everybody has their own and it's not, we're never going to come to agreement across 8 million New Yorkers. So that's as good as answer as any. So listen, thank you so much for spending time with us. I feel so much more well-informed I'm going to check out the pod and uh, thank you guys. This was a lot of fun to talk about this stuff and to take the step back from the numbers and just talk about it generally and help people like really understand like what, 
what matters and how they could, how they can think about it. So thank you. It was great to talk to you guys. Yeah. Thank no you problem. so much. That This was great. This was really awesome. Thank you guys for having me. I think it's a great idea. I feel like the chaos at the end of the presidential term swallowed some of the ability to focus and get us like kicked off and started properly on this mayoral race somehow. And then just like, the fact that we have so many candidates has become just like this dizzying thing. It's, it's hard even for someone who's like a news junkie to get your mind around it and be like, okay, but who thinks what on what on the issues? Like what's happening? So I think it's a great idea. I, yeah. I just found out yesterday that my dad, he's 81, he lives in Diker Heights, does not know who Andrew Yang is, has yeah. never heard the name. And I was like, yeah. I'm in a bubble. I am totally in a bubble. If you did not watch the presidential debates right. and you were not on social media, how would you? Yeah. And yet I don't want to pick on him because I, I think he's smart and he certainly accomplished a lot, but he's been propelled almost to the top of this race purely on name recognition from a presidential campaign where he had a legitimate idea and at the federal level, and you can't necessarily transport that to the local level. People are challenged and frustrated. And I think there's a lot to criticize in federal policy, but like you can't, if your federal government is not acting, the city government can't necessarily take on those responsibilities and execute them at the local level. It's just not feasible. Question. Do the Mets take the National League East this year? Yes, they fucking better. <laughs> <laughs> Best answer ever. But you know, so we, typical Mets, right? I was just like, can't get too excited. Can't get too excited. The other shoe's going to drop. And then the whole thing happens with what's his name. And I'm like, this is the start of the end. But no, I'm going to, I'm going to, this new, new energy. I'm not going to let that get me down. <laughs> so one, one little blip that happened today is I think Steve Cohen probably lost about $750 million in GameStop today. I saw that, but I don't feel too bad for him because I'm sure he still has tons okay. and he's willing to spend it on the Mets, which is what matters to me. <laughs> right. All right. Listen, enjoy the rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Yeah. So good to meet you guys. Thanks so much. Bye -bye. Take Thanks. care. Bye. Meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. 